I, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist, welcome to Season 2, Episode 94. Continuing with uh, the, what the English gave the world with antiquity, um, this Episode 94 is going to circumvent and circulate around edged weapons. So, Some edged weapons have certain national characteristics. But even those are blurred by the fact that fashions were copied and thus a sword with a, an apparently typical German look may, in fact, have been made in England. Dating, too, must always be general rather than very specific. For many swords continued in use long after a new style had been introduced. And indeed, not only were they in use, but they were still in production. The history of the sword has largely been influenced by its manner of use. It may be intended primarily for thrusting, in which the case, length of blade, rigidity, and the point are of prime importance. But if it is intended for slashing, the edge is then a prime concern. Most swords have in fact been cut and thrust in that they could be used for both purposes. But in this case, some compromise as far as design is concerned. It had to be affected. Again, the shape and size of the sword depended on whether it was for infantry or the cavalry, and although it was generally discarded as an infantry weapon during the 18th century, the cavalry continued to use it until they were, in turn, made totally obsolete. Even at the end of its useful life, controversy still raged as to whether the cavalry sword was a slashing or even a stabbing type weapon. Saxton and Viking swords were basically the same design in detail, but they were not common. For the great majority of grave, <coughs> grave burials lack swords, although most have spears or the smaller knife weapon called a sow or sax or sacramax. These weapons range in length from 6 to 30 inches, but all are single-edged with an acutely sloping point, and they were obviously intended as a general-purpose knife, as well as a slashing weapon, and were carried in a sheath suspended from a waist belt. Some of these weapons are finely inlaid with many styles and forms of decoration. Surviving storm swords are most frequently straight-bladed, double-edged, 30 to 40 inches in length, and with little or no point, clearly indicated that they were primary a slashing weapon. Most of these, and later swords, have one or more grooves cut into the blade, and these are often erroneously described as blood gutters, but they are in fact known as fullers after a groove cutting tool. They were intended to lighten the blade by removing some of the metal without sacrificing its rigidity, and are found on sword blades of all periods. In order to balance the blade and make it easier to wield, the sword, a counterbalance, was fitted at the opposite end of the grip, and this is better known as a pommel. Early pommels were often just flat metal washers, but soon acquired a certain decorative quality. From about the 9th century, the pommel was 
often made with the top edge divided into an odd number of lobes, but the style was out of favor by the 11th century. Protection to the hand was afforded by a simple bar across the top of the blade. The quillons, which protected beyond the edge or shoulder of the blade. The Normans, who invaded England in the 1066, were largely armed with a sword very similar to what the Viking used, although quillons were rather larger and projected farther out from the shoulder of the blade. Their pommels were of the two main varieties, a Brazil nut shape, which was to remain in fashion until the latter part of the 13th century, and a roughly semicircular or recumbent D-shape, which was to be discarded by the middle of the 12th century. About the same period, although, it was known to have been used occasionally at least a century previously, and in this round, wheel pommel was to continue in use, clear through the 15th century. At first it was flat, but at the turn of that century the edges were shaved back, and by the middle of the century it acquired two hub-like projections at the center. But this style was discarded, and by the middle of the 15th century a solid, flat-sided disc was in vogue. Although pommels were usually of metal, weapons of the highest quality were occasionally fitted with ones made of jasper and other mineral compounds. Blades were gradually increased in length, and towards the end of the 13th century, swords ranged from 45 to 55 inches. But at the same time, blades were made narrower, often with inlaid inscriptions of brass or silver. Not only was the blade increased in length, but the grip was correspondingly lengthened so that in normal use, the weapon could be used in one hand, but there was room to grasp the hilt with both hands to deliver a far more powerful blow. Collectors refer to this immediate size as a hand and a half or bastard sword. As the grip was lengthened, so too were the quillons, and although the great majority were still quite straight, some were made which curved slightly towards the blade. This tendency to curve the quillon increased until, by the middle of the 15th century, the great majority had very pronounced downward curves. Apart from the emphasized points, blades altered but little except for one, in one respect that this change was occasioned by a variation in use. For it was becoming common practice to improve the grip on the sword by hooking the forefinger over one of the quillons. Thus, by the middle of the 14th century, some blades were made with just a few inches of the edge situated just below the quillons, left blunt or even unsharpened. But this ricasso does not become really common until the 16th century. Following the appearance of the ricasso, it was logical to add some form of protection for the finger, and a small hook-like bar was added below the quillon, or more rarely, the blade was actually shaped to accommodate the finger. Around the middle of the 15th century, a similar ring was added on the other side of the blade, and these two extra guards were known as the arms of the hilt. So during the 15th century, the estoc was to become a very popular weapon. This was rather more of a short lance than a sword, for the blade was triangular or square in section, 
and the weapon was designed solely for thrustering. Escots were seldom used as the prime weapon except in foot combat at the list, but books of the 15th century intended to instruct in all styles of combat. Two developments that were taking place, probably in Italy, that were to affect the design of both the hilt and blade in a most dramatic fashion. Sometime around 1480, one of the quillons was carved up towards the pommel to form a guard for the hand-knuckle bow. And at about the same period, lugs on the quillons were extended until they united and formed a horizontal ring on the side. The hand was thus becoming enclosed within a series of protective loops and bars. And during the 16th century, this tendency developed enormously. It had been pointed out that the improved armor had emphasized the need to thrust rather than slash. And in Italy during the early part of the 16th century, there was developed a style of swordplay, which was known as fencing. Masters set up schools to teach this new fashion in sword play with stress, but not only the use of the point, but the use of the whole sword for defense as well as on offense. Fencing weapons were, at first, very long-bladed, up to five feet in extreme cases, double-edged with a short grip and a short series of loops or bars of varying complexity. This type, known as the rapier, was first appears in about 1530 and was probably of Spanish origin. Pommels on these weapons, indeed, on the vast majority of swords from the 16th century onwards, were round or even egg-shaped. As rapiers were essentially civilian weapons, they were consequently often of extremely fine quality and embellished with many forms of decoration. A few were even fitted with gold or enameled hilts. About 1580, it became the fashion to cut or chisel the steel into high-relief figures or patterns, and much of this work is outstandingly good, even by today's standards. Military swords were not as elaborate as a civilian rapier, having much simpler guards which lacked the intricate combination of bars and arms. Simple cross-like guards had gone out of style by the middle of the 16th century, and in the latter part of the same century, most swords had rings mounted on one or both sides of the quillon, whilst others had solid shells. Quillons were also curved to greater or even lesser degrees. The complete antithesis of the light flickering rapiers were the great two-handed swords, which flourished during the 16th century. Although they were mentioned as early as the middle of the 14th century, especially popular in Northern Europe. They were used entirely as slashing-type weapons. Being hurled around above the head, most measure about six feet in length, and weigh about eight pounds each, less than their size might lead one to expect. Many had that section of the blade below the quillon covered with leather, and this enabled the user to grip the blade here and so effectively shorten the length of the weapon. Two hook-like lugs, which project from the side of the blade, just below this leather-covered section, act as a quillon to guard the user's hand. Large two-handed swords were popular in Scotland and were known as great swords, from which is derived the term claymore. These rare weapons have straight, 
downsloping keyons, which usually terminate in pierced trifoils. Claymores of the 17th century commonly have a single shell on the side of the keyon. During the 17th and 18th centuries, frequent wars stimulated an increase in the number of swords produced and also the types available. Ever-changing tactics stimulated ideas about sword design and, on a similar basis, new fencing styles were evolved, which required different kinds of swords. So it is during the second quarter of the 17th century that one distinctive sword, the cup-hilt rapier, when it appears, and although it originated in Spain or Italy, it was soon widely adopted. Elaborate bars, guards, counterguards, and shells were replaced by one fairly deep, rounded dish, often pierced or chiseled, with a very long, thin keon and knuckle bow. Somewhat similar in general appearance, although easily extinguished, <coughs> is the dish rapier of the mid-17th century. For the dish is far smaller and less deep than on the Spanish weapons, and there is no knuckle bow. In France, during this period, the fencing fashion required a shorter blade. By about 1630, a traditional rapier with two shells, no knuckle bow, and no two arms was in use and vogue. This was a probable forerunner of a weapon that was to remain popular for the next century or so, the small sword. By the last quarter of the 17th century, the small sword had acquired its basic form with a blade, a surround of 30 inches in length or so, two flat shells, a knuckle bow, a rear couillon, and often horizontally, and an ovid or a simple rather than attenuated forward quillon. Two arms of the hilt sprang from the quillon block and curved to meet the shells. Delicate hilts of Chiseled steel, gold, silver, and brass were made and were sometimes further embellished with enamel plaques. Styles naturally changed during this century, or so of use. But one useful general guide for dating is the size of the arms of the hilt, for these tend to become smaller as the 18th century progresses. During the first few decades, they are large enough to be of practical use. But by about 1670 to 1665, they had become a, <clears throat> so reduced that they no more um, they they no more have, no more have decorative qualities. Shells are a, a further grade to dating, as in early so, uh, small swords they were of equal size, but as the period progressed, the inner shell was reduced in size. Finally, the late swords have a single guise guard, whilst military swords acquire a single boat-shaped guard. So blades in a variety of shapes were produced, but they may be divided into three main groups, the ordinary flat, oval section blade, the hollow ground triangular section blade, and finally the cochla marred blade. This latter type is immediately recognizable by its thick top or forte, of the blade, which narrows sharply at a point, roughly a third of the length of the blade, to a, a very much thinner section tapering off to a point. So designed to give strength at the top for paring an opponent's blade, it still allowed easy, quick, and quick to the use, quick to the point. Small swords were worn supported on two chains 
of differing lengths suspended from a steel hook, which was slipped over a belt or even a waistband. Two spring clips engaged with the, the rings attached to metal heads on the scabbard, which were usually of leather or parchment-covered wood. Another weapon, very typical of the 17th and 18th century, was the hanger of the hunting sword, for both terms are very often applied indiscriminately to the same weapon. These weapons are usually short and light, uh, with a blade of around 20 inches in length, fitted to a very simple hilt comprising a single knuckle bow, which is short, down-curving rear section of the quillon, and a high percentage have a small shell or scallop projecting from the one side of the quillon, so the metal parts of the, the uh, hilt may be out of brass, silver, steel, and are frequently decorated with mythological or hunting motifs. Grips are staghorns, wood or veneer with horn or tortoiseshell. Blades are almost invariably single-edged, but may be curved or straight. As a working generalization, it may be said that the later ones are far more often straight than not. Similarly, brass-hilted hangers were primarily military weapons. Another type of sword which flourished during the same period of the basket-hilted sword, although its earlier history is not all that clear, Germany was the probable country of origin, and the earliest recorded forms appear around the middle of the 16th century. A great majority of styles are described as basket hilts, but their common feature is a cage of bars which covers the hand when holding the hilt. This cage may be formed by a few fairly wide bars, bars or else by a complex interweaving of narrowing metal strips. So during the English Civil Wars of 1642 and 1648, both royalist and roundheads favored a cavalry sword with a straight blade and a fairly simple metal basket. Increased mechanisms during the 18th century hastens a process which had started much, much earlier, and that is the growing emphasis on standardization of military equipment. So during the 17th and 18th centuries, commanding officers had almost complete discretion in the manner of arming their units, but the freedom was gradually diminished and regulations were issued setting out details of the appropriate swords. In fact, many officers placed various constructions on their regulations so that obsolete standardism was not to be obtained for some time. British infantrymen carried a sword until 1786 when they were officially withdrawn. Officers, of course, continued to carry swords, and most of these were in the general style of a small sword with a fairy tale type light blade. In 1796, an order was made setting out details of these swords, a hilt or gilt brass with a straight blade, um, although this might be single or, or double-edged, heavy cavalry swords were also defined as being straight-bladed. Um, but unlike those with the light cavalry, who had a broad-bladed <coughs> broad saver with a sharp stirrup hilt, it was at the same period that the steel <coughs> scabbard first appeared in general, in general use in Great Britain. In 1822, Another innovation appeared in the form of the so-called Gothic hilt, which is a simple half-basket and is in this style which has survived to the present. Swords were carried by most rival naval officers 
and deferred considerably according to the occasion. The Royal Navy, indeed, all natives, indulge in considerable ceremony, and for these occasions a light dress or small sword was popular. But for combat, a heavy, often curved weapon was preferred, and in all cases the officer was free to indulge his own tasteful taste official regulation patterns appear to have been established somewhere around 1801, but it was not until 1825 that full details were recorded. These types were specified for use by the various ranks, and two years later, in 1827, a new pattern was defined, and this land, the half-basket hilt, which is still used today. Blades and hilt details have been carried over from the years and particulars of these many may be found in the appropriate reference books. For seamen in a boarding party, a cutlass of simple rugged construction was normally the issue. Cheap and lacking all trimmings, these swords were used in conjunction with (coughs) headboarding axes and shortboarding pikes. Although the sword was described by the British infantry in the middle of the 18th century, troops still carried out their own bayonets, and this legal weapon still survives today. The name bayonet derives from the town of Bayonne, which is an extreme southwest of France, although originally the sword was applied only to, <clears throat> to, to be a type of knife. So bayonets of the 17th century were of the type known as plug bayonets, since they were simply pushed into the musket barrel. Then they had a plan, turned wooden grisp, which, apart from the bulbous swelling uh, near the quillon, tapered slightly to fit firmly into the barrel. Quillons, often of brass, were quite short, and the broad double-edged blade tapered gradually to the point. So, although this form of bayonet was discarded in most of Europe, by the beginning of the 17th century, it persisted in Spain for another hundred years or so. Plug bayonets converted the empty musket into a short pike. But once in position, it meant that the musket should uh, um, sought be to overcome this serious drawback. The first step was to fix rings in the hilt, and these slipped over the barrel by securing it to the bayonet, yet leaving the barrel free for loading uh, and firing. So by the end of uh, by the end of the 17th century, the French had evolved a far more efficient uh, system, whereby the blade was fitted to a short tube, which was slipped over the barrel, and was held in place by engaging with a long with a lug on the barrel. So socket bayonets like those um, were to remain in common use until around the middle of the 19th um, and beginning of the 18th century. Socket bayonets had long, stiff, narrow, tapering blades, which limit their use to that of thrusting weapons. Attempts were soon being made to produce a bayonet, which could also be used as a sword. And in Britain, one of the first approaches of a serious weapons was the uh, brass line. <coughs> Attempts were made soon we're soon being made to produce the bayonet, which could be also used as the sword. So we're, we're switching over now. And in Britain, one of the first of such weapons was the brass-hilted bayonet for the Baker rifle, issued to certain regiments in the army or somewhere around 1800. Around the middle of the 19th century, there was also an increasing 
change from the socket fixing to that used on such weapons as the baker bayonet. A slit was cut into the grip, and this was engaged with a lug on the barrel, and when the bayonet was pushed into position, a spring clip locked it firmly in place. This system is still in use today on most of the uh, military weapons um, in the armed forces. But unlike the bayonet and the dagger um, has really never been a predominantly military weapon, although it is, of course, historically much older with its beginnings at the first hand axes of the Stone Age. By definition, a dagger is essentially a weapon with a tapering double-edged blade. Whilst a knight has, again, by definition, only one sharpened edge. But in fact, it is often not easy to be precise when describing certain specimens. As a military weapon, a dagger does not appear until the middle of the 13th century. But obviously, most older soldiers had carried some form of small-edged weapons from earliest times. Changes in style were fewer than with the swords. And at any given period, several types may be well in use. Thus, a soldier of the 14th century might have earned or carried and any one of perhaps four common types. There are many contemporary references to a dagger called an analyse, but its precise appearance is uncertain, although it seems like that it had a long, thin blade and was essentially a thrusting weapon. A base lard was also in use in this period. This was a large weapon with a larger, wider blade and a simple hilt shaped like a capital I. Civilians as well as soldiers often carried a ballock or kidney dagger for which they had a hilt fashioned entirely from wood and whose guard was formed by two small lobes projecting from either side of the grip. The, the simplicity of the design and the construction ensured a long life for this type of dagger and it was in general use until the 17th century. So pretty impressive stuff. Um, the usage really got strung out there. As this particular time, at this particular time, some schools of fencing emphasized the use of a dagger to parry an opponent's blade, and these left-handed daggers were commonly made in a variety of styles. Some are distinguished by a ring on the outside of the keon, whilst a few are fitted with the blade serrated on the edge of the uh, to entangle the opponent's blade. But during the 17th century and early 18th centuries, it was common practice for artillerymen to carry a dagger, which was adapted for use as a measuring and calculating device. Gunners' stilettos almost invariably had long, stiff, triangular blades, and one of the, one of the blade um, faces was engraved with a series of lines and numbers. By measuring the bore or inside diameter of this gun barrel, and with the blade, the gunner could then read off the correct weight and shot required. A variety of scales were used, and a few blades would be found with three sets of three, <coughs> three readings, um, one for lead, for iron, and some for shot. As the 17th century progressed, a number of changes took place in the British way of life. Greater use of cutlery, more settled times, a growing military, emphasis on firearms, and all those factors tended to, be, to make up a design of the existing and past-made uh, daggers quite unnecessary. 
Class knives were introduced and these served all general needs except for such places as the American colonies where daggers and knives were carried by large numbers of people until when in the present century of these edge weapons probably none is better known than the Bowie knife. Although its facet of the it's although its facet <coughs> the Bowie knife, although it's although in fact the extinct definition of a Bowie knife is very much in dispute. It was named after a man who led a colorful and romantic life, full and full of high adventure, doles and legendary exploits before he finally met his death fighting for a joust, a lost cause in the Alamo of Texas in 1836. James Bowie's original knife is usually accepted as being heavy, long, bladed with a clip point and sharpened false edge. At a very short time after Bowie's death, all kinds of weapons were being described as Bowie's, including, including men that were merely sheath knives, and this habit has continued to the present day, actually. Cutters from Sheffield were quick to, quick to realize the potential market for such weapons, and soon after they were producing them, and they were soon producing them in bulk. George Wasselholm was the first to appreciate the possibilities of his knives and were of good quality and good bore's trademark, IXL. But this was soon copied by his competitors. With an eye for the U.S. market, the cutters had appropriate patriotic mottos and extortions echoed on the blades, including many that suggest they were made in the United States, even though they weren't. The size of these knives varied greatly, and did, as did the style of the blade and the hilt. While its most common hand-tool leather sheaths with metal lockets and capes some bow ties were manufactured in India, but these are designated by, by guards which are wider and far more elliptical than those on English and American-type weapons, which are usually straight and fairly narrow. So after the Civil War of 1861 to 1865, Bowie production, the good old Bowie knife, Bowie production decreased and flattening knives lost most of its popularity. And it was not until the development of trench warfare during World War II, uh, is, we've kind of, kind of figured out what, why, um, what knives, again, seriously were considered, you know, as uh, um, quality or, um, or something that just hung out there. I mean, so it took, it took all that 150 years, the last 150 years of, of, of knife making, um, so the knives were seriously considered as weapons, um, and for many, many years, uh, they were considered as art and, and uh, a great uh, a memento of the craftsman. So anyway, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing out. Um, thanks for listening.